Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Friday, May 5th, 2023. Joining me for today's podcast from various time zones are John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide, Stuart Walpin, who scribes for Popular Mechanics, AARP, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other wonderful publications, and Rob Pegarero, who is perpetually on vacation. You've got to answer <laughs> that, Rob. <laughs> who writes about tech development. Work, work, work. <laughs> yeah, I believe that. At, at PC Mag, Fast Company, and other fine publications. Guys, how are you all today? Very good. Sparkly. Very well. You know, before I bring, we go into, into the topics today, just because it's news this week, I've got to talk a little bit about, you know, Apple's earnings and Google's earnings. And I know I'm hitting this, this guys with you at the last moment, but it t- to me, it's such a tale of two cities. And when I mean that, not that Apple had a spectacular quarter, they had a, 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 a reasonable quarter given the, uh, the macroeconomic conditions. Uh, I, I think in the smartphone space, they're... Uh, they're pretty much maxed out in terms of how much business you can drive when the, when the, the economy is in the shape that it's in and just the, the, the tailwinds going on. But they did show some a strong strength in smartphones. But the thing that was interesting to me, you contrast that with Google's numbers. And what blows me away, and I know you're going to have a quick spirited opinion about this, is that they lay off 12,000 people. And Sundar Pichai, who I've met, I, we did some work together when I was with Synaptics before he became CEO. He was running the Chrome uh, project there. And there was some IP work that we were doing at Synaptics because they needed some help with their touchpad driver that they ultimately used um, in Chrome OS. But this guy's getting a bonus. He's getting a raise. And, <laughs> and, I'm, not a, and I, I'm not one of those guys that are anti, hey, you, you never give a raise to anybody. But the optic, first of all, they tried to hide it. They hid it in a... Um, uh, in some of their financial disclosures. And I just don't get the optics. What, the, the, you know, anybody, PR 101, is this something we really want to do right now when you're laying off 12,000 people? And as the only person on this podcast who's in Silicon Valley, it's bad out here. Even though the, the jobs number was good this morning, that job growth number didn't come out of uh, growth in uh, the Valley. I can tell you that for a fact. So, Rob, any quick uh, of you and you from your illustrious vacation in uh Outside the country. Yeah, well, the whole spe- the spectacle of CEOs who have decided that they get paid for everything good the company does, but everything bad the company does is the fault of the little people who have to get fired. The you know, the compagnie c'est moi. It's gross. And of course, there is that contrast. Tim Cook, who of course is still getting paid well enough to ski behind as water ski behind a pay cut. Took a pay cut. Yep. Yeah, it's like. You know, what are you going to do with that money <laughs> on a practical basis? <laughs> there's a limited number of things you can spend on it. And I don't see. You know, I don't have a lot of, you know, I, I, I don't typically go after people, CEOs for, for their, their pay packages and stuff. But, you know, if you're performing and you're adding uh, people to the pay, uh, to the, uh, to the, to the dole, uh, not to the dole, <laughs> adding to the work, your, your workforce, and by the way, you're 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 producing incremental revenue. You're 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 raising dividends. You're doing all the kind of good things that stockholders want. I have no problem that with that. But Google's had some issues 
And I just I don't get it. So, Stuart, your thoughts? Well, I mean, it's an American tradition, as Rob said, that CEOs get paid huge amounts of money, no matter how well the company performs. I will not pretend to understand the corporate mind, even though they're supposedly people in, in, in regards to the law. But there are obviously these deals that, you know, that these these guys make with the companies um, that they reach certain certain levels and it may be profit margin. It may be different different uh, meters Metric, of performance metrics. that we are unaware of that triggers these bonuses. I've, obviously, everybody has lawyers and everybody is trying to get the best that they can get from whatever, whatever they do. So there obviously must be triggers that we're unaware of that have absolutely nothing to do with uh, facing performance. Stuart, I have no doubt, you know, that there are metrics that they can defend. They have probably four or five metrics, but... Mm -hmm. Someone who signed off on that package, the board of directors, or there's generally on, on a, a board of directors, a committee that that focus on executive compensation at all different levels. Listen, you know as well as I do that you have to do something really egregious to, to really get toppled from the top of a large corporation. I mean, there, there have been some real dogs in charge of companies, and it took a huge degree of public pressure and or social facing um, missteps or financial malfeasance mm -hmm. to get some one, these guys fired. So these guys have ironclad packages that oh, yeah. you know it's a it's a it's a it's a one armed bandit that pays off con continually. <laughs> well, uh, John, let me just get your quick thought on this, only because yeah. I know that there are rumors that you're replacing Tucker Carlson on Fox <laughs> um, <laughs> at the o'clock hour. And I imagine it's going to be a big package. So maybe you don't want to talk about dollars because I know you'll command that twenty-five or thirty million dollar annual package. So you probably won't, you won't go after uh, this go after the CEO in this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I like in full disclosure. I used to work for Fox, um, you know, as a technology <laughs> yeah. columnist for them, and I was also an on-air TV person for Fox for a long right. time. So full disclosure, oh, yes. I know those people. Uh, but no, <laughs> um, also full disclosure, I don't own any Google or Apple stock, none whatsoever. But, yeah. um, you know, that the jobs thing, I think, too, is is interesting because you hinted at it. There's job growth, but the job growth is in. Do you want fries with that? I yes. mean, that's where the job growth is. There's right. no actual job growth in any kind of significant way except in healthcare, And that's about and that's even under threat. So it's really there's no significant stuff going on. And, yeah, I mean, it should be, uh, you know, the, 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 the illusion in Silicon Valley is it's a meritocracy. You know, you do well and oh, you yes. get well, right? But clearly it's not, right? So, um, yeah, I, I'm with you. You shouldn't be getting a big pay raise when things look really bad. And another topic that's about to come up, that also looks really bad for you. And competition is is on the horizon, and we've got banking issues. No, I don't think it's a time to get like this big pay increase. Well, well, you know you're in trouble when a meme pops up that your lord, oh, Lord Fodku, the guy, the, the character from uh, from Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, at Google, Eric Schmidt ran Google for a while, and he was by far not the most competent person. He'd come from a company that he just ran into the ground. It was like, and the thing kept going, right? So right. to Stuart's point, right? Uh, you could probably take your Aunt Frida and she'd probably do pretty well right now as the head of Google. Well, we could talk about this forever, but I had to bring it up because it just, it, it just drives me crazy when I see stuff like that. So yeah. let's talk about our first topic here. Uh, this is going to be a fun one. Um, uh, you know, th there's been a lot of discussion 
some really good discussion, I think, in the media around, you know, how do you regulate AI in a responsible, and this is the key thing, and pro-innovation manner. You know, there was a terrific article, Stuart, that you um, forwarded around. I want to get your perspective, because um, I do think there is a way to approach this. I mean, I would settle, by the way, and I've said this repeatedly on different podcasts, I would love there just to be some requirement, even if it doesn't come from the government, that tech companies come together on this, that they're going to disclose that they use some type of Gen AI base capability. There's right. a watermark or something right. um, that, hey, by the way, you're reading this content or you're, you're, you're watching this kind of content because Gen AI can also be video based as well. And I, my big fear is that it's going to make deep, deep fakes so easy to do that the average person will be able to do this without a lot of trouble. Um, but let's, Stuart, let me get your perspective because that was a great article that you sent around. But what's your thoughts? Well, I saw an, an interview with Hinton, the, um, the godfather of AI, who uh, quit Apple, uh, quit Google a couple of days ago. Um, and he likened this to the nuclear arms race of the 50s and 60s, and that any regulation or any industry come together has to include everybody because there's mutually assured destruction as there was during the nuclear arms race that everybody has a key to this that this technology can be used really wrongly i mean really badly by any actor and one of the things he talked about in which i had thought of and you just mentioned is labeling that, you know, I can't, the thing that kept popping into my head was the Isaac Asimov's three rules of robotics. Yeah. You know, that every robot was built in with these safeguards that would disallow certain activities from happening. And, and so short of that, certainly labeling that make it an agreement amongst all the developers, because you're not going to stop development of this. Um, um, 10,000 researchers can sign petitions that we're not going to do any stop research on this and it's not going to stop because the research will only be continued by people we don't want to continue the research on right mm -hmm. so there they, there has to be some agreement that all ai generated material has to be very clearly labeled with the source either front facing and in whatever media in which that material appears in so if it's a visual then the this is AI generated, it has to appear. If it's audio, it has to be an audio, you know, in all of those sorts of ways. So he's, his first first his first thought was all AI has to be clearly labeled. And in, in my view, in addition, be able to be traced back to its source. That all code has to include the source of of the of of the of the creation. Right. Other than that. The calls for stopping research, I think, are just... No, that's not going to happen. It's not. not. It's really. not. Yeah. You know, I, it's just not. I mean, there might be people who say, oh, yeah, we'll halt it. it ain't yeah. But this all has to be in agreement with all the tech companies. There isn't a government who could say stop doing this and have any effect on the global right. research of this. Right. Rob? Same. So the reason why I'm out of town is I'm in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. It's lovely weather. <laughs> really hot humid actually uh for web summit they had their first rio edition of the conference here and there was a lot of discussions about ai most of it not in the sense that ai is going to yield some omnipotent artificial intelligence being that will you know reduce humanity to a sort of gray goo but that you know deployed badly it could just you know the, the simplest worry that somebody raised a very smart scientist from google was 
it'll just make existing inequalities worse. Some people will be will be able to afford the, the monthly subscriptions. Others won't. And, you know, the, the haves and have not problems that we have right now will only escalate just amplified by AI. There's definitely every time I've talked to people about if we're going to have an AI deployed talking to people, it has to be clear that you're talking to an AI because, you know, it is already good enough. You can be fooled by that. Rob, you're, certain, not an, you're not an AI. I, I thought you were. Like, <laughs> I can't prove it. You know, I, I don't have a copy of today's paper here. Um, <laughs> that's still, I'm that would that's that works in movies. I'm not sure that still would work today with a deep fake. They could probably fake that or, too. Rip the mask off. Um, yeah. Cause as is, if people think they're, even if people know they're talking to a machine, that they can still sort of decide that, oh, you know, this thing really understands me, so don't make it worse. And certainly, if you're going to deploy an AI in a customer service, customer-facing role, you'd better do that because, right. you know, people need to be clear what just happened. Well, you know, I've said this before. I mean, the, the first area that's going to get decimated in this and in the process of getting de decimated is going to be customer uh, service. I mean, you know, you you know, when you go on to uh, Amazon and you have an issue and you go into a chatbot and it, it's pretty canned in that, you know, if it, if it comes to the conclusion, because it's all automated, it's an automated bot, if it can't solve your issue, it then puts you in touch with a live <clears> person. Uh, but you pretty much know, even though they don't disclose it, that, that first at three or four text message interaction is pretty much a, a bot. Wait till that gets to the point where, um, it's going to be some type of, uh, not a deep fake, but a, a, some type of virtual AI where you really I, I talked to uh, Intercom, the San Francisco company that does customer support platforms. They have a chatbot called yeah. Finn, which is built on ChatGPT4. And they were one of the people who said, you know, we, we have to make it clear all the time. And this is something they've been saying for years. Either you're talking to an actual human life form or you're not. Because the idea is this will take care of a lot of the simpler questions, the easy ones. And then when you can hand it off in theory, then you get the sort of white glove customer service expert who makes you feel valuable and makes you want to come back to the company. Well, you know, it's amazing. The PC guys are going to be all over this because the when you, they get a support call, a support call might cost them 10, 10 12. It, I don't have the current numbers. It used to be $30, $40. Now they've gotten the cost down because they've offshored most of the um, customer support. But if you could take that number down to zero, because the, the and by the way, there's probably a benefit, you know, and if I can get my question answered that much more quickly, a technical question, because you can, you know, there's so much web content that these these uh, AI pages can curate and probably get to an answer a lot faster than a human could. I'm all for that. As long as there's a disclosure that I don't know uh, that I know that I'm not talking to a piece of silicon. Uh, Stuart, your th um, any remaining thoughts before we go to John? Stuart? Well, the, the problem. Listen, the benefits of AI are so obvious, and I think that's what's lost in this conversation. Almost all technological, disruptive technological breakthroughs always come forward first in an egalitarian fashion, that they're very good for society, and then they take on these darker tones. Alfred Nobel, Orville Wright, uh, when the plane was used for military purposes. Um, history is replete with situations where you have this great technology that everybody thinks is going to uplift society. And then the darkness comes, which is what has happened to a certain degree with social media, which we'll get to in a minute. So, but AI is, isn't just, 
in one or two places. It will be pervasive. It will have positive benefits in a lot of different places, not only customer service, but medical diagnosis, as we get to be have a shortage of proficient medical people, um, and as well as customer. I mean, there's a lot of areas where AI will be very, very handy to have. But unfortunately, it is so <clears throat> prone to be misused and I think the problem that everybody is wrestling with is what we we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know what to do about what we don't know. So, John, let's make sure we get off this topic on a, on a quasi-optimistic <laughs> basis. <laughs> you know, and because I think Stuart raises the dark a good point. <laughs> well, I think I mean, Stuart raises a good point is that I think that when the election comes up next year. We have eight, as I used to say, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, I think there's going to be some crazy crap out there, which, again, can't get attributed to a group. It's not going to be easily identifiable because it's going to be so realistic and so well done that I think that I, I cringe to see what's on both sides, by the way, on both sides of the aisle. I think you're going to see nutty, nutty material. So, but John, are you optimistic a little bit? Makes me feel better. <laughs> um, well, I, I don't know how optimistic I am. I mean, there there are a couple of points about this. One is it's already being abused extensively in insurance, banking, employment, um, uh, all these different ways. And that that's one issue already. So the cat is out of the bag. They're already abusing it in, in multitudinous ways that are harming people in real you know, physical ways. You don't get the job. You don't get this. There are all sorts of ways in which this is hurting people already. Um, the other, the other point of it is, um, I it's really, really bad. So just that customer service example. So I tried that just yesterday with Chat GPT, and I'm reviewing a bunch of products, and I have like six different cameras, and I just put a giant TV and like there's one behind me because I'm moving TVs around. And I asked ChatGPT just a simple tech question about whether I could do something with an app. And it said, oh, yes, of course you can. And it gave me a whole detail by the numbers how to go through this program. Completely erroneous. <laughs> Every single step was erroneous. And this is something that you know the the a high school programmer can screen scrape right the old-fashioned way that's all that they're doing is trying to screen scrape and then like piece it together like a jigsaw puzzle right. it's terrible and then when i raised it with chat gpt that's wrong it said i'm sorry you're absolutely right that was totally incorrect <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's it's really terrible i mean that that's one of the problems with it if they replace you know if you do that look at the search engine and you try to match results, it's actually worse most of the time. Yes. So, uh, I don't, it's, it's, not, it's not, it's not good at nuance. If you ask a very complex question and I have, you know, outside the technology space, some entertainment related questions, which I won't bore you with. Right. And one question I, asked, I'm not gonna tell you what the question was. I, the, I want to say about 80% of the answer was true, but it was factually wrong about one of the elements, which would have been very easy to disprove. It wasn't based like an opinion or, or wasn't subjective. So right. nuance is something that it really doesn't get. You know? Well, I mean, there, there are some reasons for it. One, one is, you know, if I was going to legislate things, I'd be like, you can't use Reddit as your data set. <laughs> I mean, that's just moronic, right? And that's what all of those, those generative AIs do. They use Reddit of all places. You shouldn't be able to use Wikipedia or Reddit or some of these things as a data set. That's just 
not a, not a thing. It shouldn't be a thing. So that's one of the reasons why these are so bad at what they're doing. But um, you know that that's it. But Stuart, to Stuart's point about transparency, there are two things. Yes, it should be labeled. So you're reading the CNET article, not to mention any names, but CNET and Bankrate. Uh, it should have a warning label, the bug that says this was created by an, an AI, right? It should be on the page, every page you look at. That's one thing. But the transparency is something that the industry has sort of balked at because the nature of these weighted neural networks running various algorithms at different levels of those neural networks means that you're using so much computing power tracing back to where that made a decision to turn a corner or not turn a corner or give you this answer takes as much computing power as it did to generate the answer to begin with. And that's why there's no transparency. I don't know what you do about that. There's a lot of discussion about how deep should you be able to go? How explainable should the results be? You know, did you have a data set that had people of color in it or not? And mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So those are tougher issues. But just just really quickly on your pro innovation, I don't think that any regulation will threaten the innovation because even if you put in really strict regulations on the commercial side, which is what all the people at Google are saying, we want to do something, but until you tell us what to do, we're not going to do anything. But the government is still going to be running this. So it's not like... China and the U.S. and Israel be running these programs full tilt on the espionage side. There's not going to be any slowdown. So I'm not worried that there won't be innovation because they're going to keep doing what they're doing anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a difficult thing. We had Lena Khan, Stuart pointed out, her excellent op-ed if people haven't read it about what regulations are already in place. And uh, we had the vice president bring everybody to the White House and wag her finger, say you better do something. Uh, yeah, that, I, was very, I thought that was very helpful. Well, just, just so people know what we're talking about, it was an op-ed in yesterday's or the day before's New York Times yeah. on AI by the F FTC chair. Yeah, yeah. And it, I think it's a very cogent, it explains very briefly what some of the issues are and uh, what people are already doing kind of and saying, hey, we have these regulations. Well, I, I, we got to get to the next topic, but Rob, your pals at the CIA, I'm sure they're, they're rubbing <laughs> their hands in glee on what they can use this thing they yeah. can use AI for. I can only imagine. And I can imagine the Hollywood writers, although they're on strike, they're, they're rubbing their hands in glee. There's, there's about 150 plots, you know, uh, talking about really bad things that could happen. With Black this. Mirror think, going on and on forever, yeah. I, Max, uh, head, Max Headroom has returned. You know, <laughs> I think they already covered these angles years ago. You're probably right. Well, let's get to topic two here. Uh, this is an interesting one. In a rare uh, show of bipartisan, at least at, at the legislation creation level, I think it was uh, uh, Senator Hawley uh, has got a, uh, a bill to curb social media by you know essentially um, preventing people uh, under 13, 13 or I think the age is 13, maybe it's 16, but I think it's 13. It's 13. Is it the shots bill though? That's yeah, the one it, I just it, read it, about. Shots and cotton. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cotton, 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 cotton. Who agree about approximately nothing besides this bill. Yeah. Well, but here, so, you know, Rob, we'll probably go to you first on this. Here's the thing that troubles me about this is that, you know, we, this is like the well, a well-intentioned piece of legislation. Everybody knows that social media with kids, is can be dangerous in some place in some um, sometimes even life threatening. Um, it's it's uh, the obsession with it, the addictive nature of it, all bad things. 
I just don't know how you implement this. I just don't get it because kids are, I mean, yeah, you could probably put some controls around it at the app level where, you know, okay, you have to verify your age. That's really hard to do, I think, from a practical standpoint. And kids are notorious for getting around things. I could tell you stories about my brothers and stuff in terms of, my father would secure that liquor cabinet with locks and stuff. They got into it. <laughs> they knew the combination somehow. Not me, of course, because I was the oldest one in the family. But Rob, from your perspective, talk about the wisdom. And But just, is this even implementable, if that's a word? That's a good question. Yeah, I've read this bill. It was dropped uh, Wednesday of last week. Bipartisan bill. And it's got a few different provisions. One is no one under 13 is allowed on social media, which is de facto already the case because of the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, COPPA. If you're not familiar with it, there's literally an episode of Silicon Valley, the HBA series that very accurately describes how it works. Uh, says you can't, you know, monetize them in any way. You can't advertise to them. It, it's the one bill that gives any Americans meaningful online privacy at the federal scale right now. Above that, it says the must social networks must verify the age of customers. So people under 18, you know, do not get served up algorithm recommendations, programmatic advertising. But, you know, the catch is they're going to have to card everybody. It doesn't say check the age of everyone who looks to be under 50. And so we all get carded. And so then how do you do that? And there are two ways so far that social sites have done when they're not like taking a credit card or establishing some kind of financial relationship. One is some kind of video selfie, like what ID.me does, which is kind of creepy to see in practice or upload documents. Problem is most kids don't have documents, a minority, probably a tiny minority of passports, uh, no one under 16, I hope, has got a driver's license. Rob, Rob, I mean, so how many, when you were a kid, how many kids, I don't know if that, that happened in, in Washington, but in, in where I grew up in New Jersey, if you want to get a fake ID, you go to Times Square, and you can buy one for about five bucks, if I recall. You well, know? in fact, uh, my freshman year at Georgetown, the bars still took school IDs. <laughs> so we all figured out ways to alter ours. That's the good old day. Right. Another talk. <laughs> Uh, and so the interesting part, this this is the buried lead in the bill that comes about two thirds of the way down. It directs the Secretary of Commerce to set up a pilot program through which the government could verify the ages of Americans, either through, uh, you know, verifying documents or checking things like state TV records, Social Security and IRS records and provide a secure digital identification credential that you could then present to social sites as proof of your identity. So it's this thing. We'll solve this by having a, a national digital ID exist that has not on a previous level. But then it says this pilot program shall sunset either five years after these certificates start getting handed out or eight years after the bill goes into force. And it doesn't see what happens then. So I don't know what they're doing. It's like, did they want this to succeed so well that it'll, it'll just get unsunsetted endlessly or that this will be seen to be a gigantic failure or we can all just have a, a national conversation eight years from now and think, did we really want to do this after all? I don't know. And yeah, there is the issue that um, another angle that would require parental permission. Well, you know, lots of kids aren't in awesome relationships with parents. Yes. I would imagine many of them find that, you know, communing with like-minded kids online is one way to deal with it. So there's a lot of ways this could go wrong. It seems like a really brittle piece of legislation. And given that Congress can't even pass a federal online privacy bill, which we need 
pretty much no one is in denial about that. I don't see how this goes anywhere. It does right. advance the conversation in some fascinating ways. Stuart, your 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 uh, view. Well, I the, the thought is that anytime the government steps in and says you can't do something, never leads to good outcomes. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is, while I don't have any kids, I certainly remember being a kid. And when I'm told as a kid, I can't do something. I worked really hard to do it anyway. So, I mean, just from the psychology of the government, you know, what, what people call the nanny state, I'm still going through the bill, Rob. I'm, is there any enforcement or punishment mechanism built into this? In other words, is there any fines that the company? Yes, the Federal bill? Trade Commission can enforce this. So can state, state attorneys general. So, yes, it, it could create a lot of problems for a company that is found to have violated it. I forget the, the, what it exactly it can cost. But, yeah, when any of 50 state AGs can uh, take you to court, you're going to be motivated to abide by it as best as you can. Well, that, thanks. That, that's a good thing. But I think that there are ways of solving this that the parents can certainly take advantage of. It's not a, a panacea, obviously, but one um, Android has um, something called Family Link, where you can restrict the phone from downloading uh, any app yep. from, from the Google Store. Apple's, unfortunately, Apple's parental restrictions do not stretch to anything other than Apple-installed apps, which I think is a huge black hole. And I, but there is, there are apps, parental yeah, control apps, that, but, that but, you can install on any phone yeah. that would give you control over what is on your kid's phone. The other technology solution is don't let a kid there. Don't let a kid get a smartphone until a certain age. And yeah. if you have to have the kid have a phone, you get him a flip phone. Now, whether or not that causes societal issues in school or whatever, I think is secondary to the social problems that a lot of uh, right. social media run rampant cause. But I mean, there are OS solutions. There are third party application solutions. There's simply the solution of there has already been a very widespread movement in the country. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of um, wait until 18 or something like that before a child gets a smartphone. There are plenty of really cool flip phones out there that will give, give a child a way to contact the parents in case of an emergency or stay in contact with friends, but not allow them to be on social media. So there are so many parental ways of restricting this. No. That would be something that either could help solve the problem, be supplemental to whatever the government thinks they're going to do. The other point that I, I, the other thing I thought of was the, the video game rating system kerfuffle back in the nineties and Tipper Gore. And I think a lot of what this legislation is designed to do is the same thing that the threat of government legislation had to do over governing the video game space, which is force the industry to come up with their own solutions so the government doesn't have to. So uh, in a lot of ways, I think that this is a threat more than a potential reality, this legislation, yeah. to get the, the social media companies to get their act together. Yeah, I, I want to get John into this, but the, the point I would make, I, a couple of points you made, Stuart, that I think are interesting. First of all, I'm catching up now for the first time. I'm watching Boardwalk Empire, <laughs> which tells you how behind I am in terms of watching content. Uh, all, two words, the Volstead Act. That worked really well right. for, for, for an entire decade. Right, that's and, the first thing that came to my head. I don't know how accurate Boardwalk Empire is, and I am from New Jersey, but I can tell you it's, it sounds like if you wanted to get a drink, you could get a drink during the 1920s after that. Yeah, so cor corruption in New Jersey, impossible. Oh, yeah, <laughs> what? Crazy. Yeah, you know, the state sport. 
But but the other point I think you made is why go to legislation? You know, there's software out there. There's numerous apps. I tend to like the Bark solution uh, because it, it really pulls the parent the parent into the process, and that you can really control and manage the apps. Um, on the smartphone and if there's certain content that pops up with certain keywords you can immediately act on that now that does require engagement by the parent i think some parents want to actually you know i, I think you could probably get them past oh just download this app but to really make it work you really have to be involved in mon essentially monitoring your co kids content which you would think would be something that a parent would want to do but Obviously, there's a lot of parents. You can't legislate parents. people being awesome parents. You, you, no, can you can make case people being terrible parents, no, but it's a pretty right. high bar. And John, and John, even though you had terrible parents that raised a, a bum like you, um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's not true. I I apologize to, to John and his parents <laughs> if they're still around. Uh, but John, what's your perspective on this? Well, having raised a child right through this digital age and having every piece of technology, you know, she was a beta tester on PlayStations and, you know, God knows what kind of social media and stuff. Um, it actually, I've seen the other side. For her, there's been a lot of benefits. It meant that she could connect to people when she wasn't able to get out and do things like other kids could do. So there are lots of situations in which this is very positive. And, you know, most kids thankfully deal with some of this stuff, the cyberbullying and stuff like that pretty well. Thank goodness that they are able to, you know, it's the, it's the other cases that, that we worry about um, and they're being terrible and tragic. What really strikes me though, Stuart and I have both done this. I think we both wrote for family PC magazine. Oh, wow. We've done really? like these endless, I remember entertainment weekly doing articles about parental controls and stuff like that. And I've done, they don't work. Not a single one of them. I can write how you're supposed to use them, but they don't work. As you said, every word pops up as objectionable. They come <laughs> up with a different word next week, um, and you end up tracking so much stuff that it just makes it impossible. And you can't take the phones away from people because five-year-olds have, you know, Apple iPhones. It's just not, that's not going to work either. That's That ship sailed, it's gone. So what I'm disturbs me about what, is the problem though is the facebook's of the world that experiment on the users of facebook and they try these things where they run an algorithm let's say let's let's give them a whole bunch of negative data and see what they click on <laughs> that that should not be legal why that kind of deceptive practices are allowed i don't really understand because if you did that with shampoo or you know a can of beans <laughs> that would be illegal but you know, you they, didn't they, have a, they, be a lot of bored, a lot, right. a lot so of bored people. <laughs> right. So there, there are all these like the dating site that sent you on terrible dates on purpose. Oh, um, really? I didn't, the, that I didn't know. <laughs> the, the Facebook manipulation of people that is ongoing now. I mean, they're constantly experimenting and you sign when you click on those user agreements, it's in there that they can basically experiment on you with this. So I, that's the stuff that worries me that that's, right allowable and that's why when i see lena khan's comments from the ftc i think yeah that's where we should be looking at this stuff that if you do that and to stewart's point there should be some really massive fine it can't just be a hundred grand or something like that I'm right no, no. we've right. talked about that before yeah well, so I, you know deceiving that's the problem is that is that they are manipulating <laughs> people to see what happens to get you know to get better more clicks on an ad which is wrong
you know. Let us hit the last topic here. Um, and this is an important one, you know, given all the supply chain um, frivolity we've been through over the last few years. Um, but, uh, you're, you know, Stuart, I think you're the one who raises the topic in our kind of our pregame on the podcast. Is India really poised to become that next great tech manufacturing center and why? You know, well, so we, we seem to go in waves. The U.S. obviously was the major manufacturing center for technology up until the late 60s, early 70s. Then you had Japan, Inc. And then after Japan, you had a brief flurry. In between, you had a brief flurry from Europe when Thompson bought RCA. Mm-hmm. And you had a flurry from Korea. Um, and then Korea moved to China. Um, and now you're beginning to see the beginnings of this movement to India. The weird thing about these shifts that they were almost always carried along by very particular brand names coming out of those countries, particularly television brands. So Japan Inc. was led by the Sonys, the Panasonics, JVCs, Toshibas, and in the flat screen era, Sharp. And then it moved to, to Korea where you had Samsung and LG, which had bought Zenith and quickly discarded Zenith for a while. <laughs> and then we moved to China where you had TCL and Hisense and Skyworth to a lesser extent carrying the ball. This move to India, though, even though we're now m- much more in a smartphone-dominated age rather than a TV-dominated age, there are no Indian brands for any technology that are carrying the weight for India Inc., which is very unusual in the history of these sorts of regional manufacturing shifts. Now, they, there are Indian-made smartphones, and I'm sure that there are Indian-made televisions. They're only locally available, and a lot of this is due to um, to whatever policies Prime Minister Modi has instituted, especially the make local to buy local or to sell local. Apple has been in the forefront of this. A lot of the Chinese companies have, but Apple has been moving up very, very quickly there. Um, The last report I saw was that 7% of iPhones are now manufactured in India. They'd only expected it to be 5% by this point. So it's moving much faster for at least Apple. And Apple hopes to have 25% of its phones being made in India, not all for local consumption, a lot of them for export by 2027. So I think you're seeing a huge move out of China, mostly because China stubbed its own toe over COVID factory closings, uh, a lesser extent Vietnam. But what is interesting here is that there are no Indian television or smartphone brands that are helping lead the charge to really magnify India Inc. as a manufacturing center. Right. Rob, your perspective? Uh, That's an excellent point. I mean, India has the obvious attraction that it is not China. It is not you know, the, the regime, Modi doesn't always seem super fond of the part of democracy where you can say what you like about the government in power um, <laughs> or, you know, it, having it be open to people of different religions, but clearly not the People's Republic of China. He's not Xi Jinping. Right. right. Um, and yeah, it is a country where certainly labor costs are a lot lower. Uh, so it makes sense. I, I am in favor of that happening because. Yeah, it, it's not great for the U.S. and the West in general to be so dependent on China. Well, and one thing that Stuart didn't mention is that India. Well, and one thing Stuart didn't mention, or you mentioned very tangentially, uh, is that India has the advantage of ha- has a very strong technical workforce. Now, it's mostly on the yep. programming and software side, but if you're a uh, manufacturer, that's a big plus. You know, it's not yeah, just and- the lower lower manufacturing costs. You have a very unlike. Not to say that China doesn't have any of that kind of talent, 
it's no comparison to India, you know, from a programming software development standpoint. Engineering in general. I mean, one one storyline I'm just watching out of the corner of my eye is uh, India has got a pretty active space program. And within two years, they do plan to launch their own astronauts into space, which yes. that's, a, that's a club that so far has been the U.S., Russia and China. And so, of course, India is about to become the most populous country on the planet. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it's also going to be the world's largest market. For, so for them to de be developing their own manufacturing um, infrastructure there makes all the sense in the world for them, if not for the rest of the world. Right. Yep. John, John take us home on this topic. Yeah, I, I think the the um, the you know the lack of sort of a major brand is definitely an issue in the you know up and coming companies. The only one being Tata, which has. Uh, Land Rover and Jaguar. There's certainly in, in the automotive oh, yeah. area. There's been uh, in mobility space. India has been making inroads. Pardon the pun for quite some time. So yeah, that there there is in that aspect of it. But in the consumer electronics space, not so much. And um, you know, it's lacked some of the infrastructure that you need. It has the ability and skill set, but the infrastructure is not that great in India. And that's that's been a major sticking point, I think, for some of this development. But it is definitely an interesting perspective as we try to shift away from China and um, and protect Taiwan because there's so much intellectual property in Taiwan sitting there um, and the economy and ability to uh, do some of the things we, we need technology wise. Yeah, India looks like a good opportunity, but, you know, it, it hasn't taken off even the space stuff is we'll see and uh it's an interesting uh thing to keep an eye on well i think just to close it on this topic uh as we get closer to god forbid some type of action on china to invade taiwan i think as we get closer to that i think it's going to be inevitable myself personally for a whole bunch of different reasons india becomes a lot more attractive so and i think the number of the tech um, almost every major tech company right now is trying to hedge its bets so, um, and I think they have to, but, uh, guys, thanks for taking the time to join me for today's podcast for our viewing and listening audience. Please make sure that the smart tech tech podcast becomes a future part of your data commute. Please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast, or use these on-screen QR codes to connect with me. You can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Vina, uh, tech guy. And until next time, have a great week. And thanks guys again. Thank you. Obrigado.